Well, I want to ask this question to you. Thank you, Gabe. I want you to think about if you were to write a song about your life, what would the lyrics of that song be? If you were to write a song about your life and about your relationship with God, your relationship with Jesus Christ, how would you describe your relationship with him? How would you describe him? And how would you describe what he has done in your life and for your life? Think about the lyrics of your own life song and what that would be. Well, as I was thinking about uh, our passage this morning, I thought about Henry Van Dyke. Henry Van Dyke was a Presbyterian pastor back in the middle of the 1800s, and he also was a professor at Princeton University. He became a military chaplain for the United States Navy during World War I. He also was selected as an ambassador for President Woodrow Wilson to represent us uh, to Holland. And before the World War I started, before the war started, uh, we were on the brink of the war. And, and this man, uh, Henry Van Dyke, he was speaking at a, at a college called Williams College in Massachusetts. In the morning he was scheduled to speak, he had his devotions, and he was looking out at the beautiful Berkshire Mountains up, up in that area. And while he was observing God's beautiful creation, and while he was preparing to speak and on the brink of the war, he, he came across these wonderful, uh, hymn, this wonderful hymn, these wonderful lyrics that described not only his life, but who God was. And little did he know that this hymn that he would write would be, would be sung for generations to come, specifically at Christmas time. It's the song, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. And as he was writing these words, looking at the beautiful mountains, he then that morning took it to the president of that university and said, here's a hymn for you. And the inspiration was your mountains that I was observing this morning. And this is what he said about the song and what uh, the purpose was in writing this hymn. He said, these verses are simple expressions of common Christian feelings and desires in this present time. Hymns of today that may be sung together by people who are not afraid that any truth of science will destroy their religion or people that are afraid that any revolution on earth will overthrow the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, this is a hymn of trust and of hope. You see, what Henry Van Dyke was doing was he was reflecting on the times he was living and he knew that there was uh, about to be a war that would take place. And he was reminded who was the king of all kings and the the Lord of all lords, whose government would never end. And that's what inspired him to write these words. And as you think about the words, joyful, joyful, we adore thee, think about some of the lyrics uh, to it. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, hail thee as the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness, fill us with the light of day. As you just reflect on these words, you can see how he praises the Lord for who he is. We adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Our hearts unfold like flowers before you. And then it goes on to say that he is the giver of immortal gladness who fills us with the light of day. What rich lyrics that this man wrote about who God is and what God does. And then to conclude the song, it's a familiar verse. Mortals join the mighty chorus which the morning stars began. Father love is reigning o'er us. Brother love binds man to man. Ever singing march we onward, victims in the midst of strife. 
joyful music lifts us sunward in the triumph song of life. He's saying here that in Jesus Christ, we are victorious and that no matter uh, whether we're in the midst of strife, we can still have hearts filled with joy because of who God is and because of what God does for us. Again, this is a great song that he wrote many years ago about his life and about who God is. What about you? What would the song look like for your life and as you describe who God is and what he has done for you and for his people? Well, I bring this up because Mary wrote a song that is remembered and passed down for generations to come. And it's found in Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 46. It's known as the Magnificat. So let's look at Mary's song and see how she praised the Lord for who he is and what he has done for her life and the lives of his people. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, as I said a minute ago, this song is known as the Magnificat. And what does the Magnificat mean? It means the word magnify or magnificent. That's what Mary was talking about here. She was magnifying uh, the Lord, and, and her soul is magnifying who he is and what he has done for her. And this is where we get in verse 46, the title, the Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord. What was Mary getting at when she said these words? Well, she wasn't saying that God was getting bigger, because after all, God does not get any bigger. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a spirit and has no body like you and me. So he does not get bigger because he's already magnificent. He doesn't need to get any bigger. But what Mary was saying here is she was saying, my soul enlarges the Lord, meaning my thoughts about him are growing. My perspective of him is enlarging. That's what's happening. And that's what Mary is describing here about her soul, how she is welling up, her, her soul is welling up with passion for who he is, and so she can't help but burst forth in song about who he is. She was in wonder of who he is. Now, when I think about this, I, I think about our, our common term today, mind blown. You know what I mean? When you have your mind blown, it means that you learn something new for the first time and you're blown away by it. Your mind is blown. Or you learn something new about who God is or about a specific subject you might be studying. Your mind has been blown away in the same way Mary's mind was blown because she was reflecting on who God is. And as we go through this song, you will see it's saturated and filled with Old Testament references. Mary, as a 14-year-old girl, she knew her stuff. 
She knew her Bible. She studied it and studied it and studied it. And you will see references, many references to the Psalms, Numbers chapter 11, and even the reference to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And so you'll see that the more Mary was studying the word of God, the more more her soul was magnifying him. She grew in knowledge of who God was because she was reflecting on the word of God and she was also reflecting on what just happened to her. That Gabriel appeared to her and said, you're gonna be the mother of the Messiah. And she was reflecting on the conversation she just had with Elizabeth and she's still in the home of Elizabeth and she's overflowed with joy and, and this is what resulted in her, in her writing this song. So her soul is what magnified the Lord. She grew a whole new perspective of who he is. Her mind was blown. But I also think about the magnifying glass. And this is a magnifying glass, obviously. And what do you do with a magnifying glass? You look at it and you look at a paper and the the words are enlarged as you look through this magnifying glass. Why do you do it? Because it might be hard for you to see the words on the paper. And because you have a magnifying glass, you are now able able to understand what the author is intending to write, uh, whatever, whatever paper or book you're reading using this magnifying glass. Well, here's the thing about the magnifying glass. As you're looking at the paper, the paper doesn't grow itself, does it? The paper doesn't get bigger, but your perspective of what you're reading gets bigger because you're able to see it and you're able to understand it. That's what Mary is getting at. God is not getting bigger. Her perspective of him is. And so why does Mary's soul magnify it magnifies, and, and she, she gives three reasons as to why it magnifies. And I'm going to be a good Presbyterian pastor this morning, and I'm going to give you three alliterative words for you to remember. I don't always do this, but three points with three M's, okay? Three reasons why Mary's soul magnified the Lord is because God was mindful of her, God is mighty, and God is merciful to her and to his people. God is mindful of his people. He's mighty and he's merciful. So Mary went on as she said, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices on God, my savior. She then went on to describe how God was mindful of her by saying he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. This is why her perspective of him enlarged because she realized that he was mindful of her in her humble estate. He remembered her. Here she was, a 14-year-old girl, a nobody in a nowhere place of Nazareth, and God chose her. You know what Mary's life reminds me of? It reminds me of the true Cinderella story of the Bible. I know all of us have watched or read about the story Cinderella. A girl who is a, a stepdaughter and a stepsister who is neglected who is really kind of a servant to her stepmother and stepsisters. She's pretty much confined to her own home, and and she does the work of a slave. She is forgotten. She was living in a humble status and a humble estate. One day she gets out, and she meets a prince, and he immediately is wooed by her and falls in love with her, and then she has to leave, and he gets this slipper, and he says, I've got to find this woman that... I was mesmerized with. So he searched the city and the town high and low to find this woman. And after meeting all the women and having them put their foot in this slipper, he finally gets to this forgotten woman, Cinderella. She tries on that slipper and she becomes the princess. 
In the same way, Mary is saying here, God was mindful of me, a teenage girl in my humblest status, and he, found, and he saw me. He looked at me. He acknowledged me. He was mindful of me, of all people. That's the true Cinderella story of the Bible. In the same way, I want you to think about you. Because after all, the Bible is for us to learn about who God is and how it applies to our lives. God is mindful of you. And when is he mindful of you? When you're in a low position, a low status. When you are weak. When you realize you don't have it all together. When you realize you are a sinner in need of a savior to deliver you from your sins to forgive you and to love you and to run after you and rescue you. God is mindful of you and that's what Christmas is all about. That's why he came to this earth because he's mindful of us and he wants to provide us everlasting life in heaven. He wants to provide us peace on this earth. He wants us to provide us comfort and joy and hope beyond anything. So let the Christmas message, the Christmas story fill you with hope now. I don't know where... Many of you are. I know where a lot of you are as your pastor, but some of you don't, don't share things with us. And I, I, I hope that we begin to create even more of a culture where you share your stuff with us because none of us have it together. We don't have it all together. All of us in this room have something going on. I guarantee it. And no matter what you're dealing with right now, I just want you to have hope. And I want you to be reminded that God is mindful of you. He loves you. So let that fill you with peace this Christmas season. And please begin to share with us your struggles. If you haven't already, share with it with your small group, with a counselor, with a pastor, with an elder, with a close friend. We're in this together. And one thing that we need to remind each other about is that God is mindful of us, just as he was mindful of Mary. Well, Mary goes on to say, okay, not only am I magnifying the Lord because he's mindful of me, but I also magnify the Lord because he's mighty. Verse 49, God is mighty, for he is mighty. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. You know what's interesting about our culture today? Our culture today, many people would describe God as a higher power. They would describe God as as an impersonal force. May the force be with you. Uh, I, yesterday, I kid you not, I was doing a phone call counseling session and this individual said, well, the universe has been good to me. Uh, the universe, okay, that's, that's interesting. I've heard energy, good energy. I'm feeling good energy, good vibes. I've got good karma, yin and yang. I hear all these things that are describing an impersonal being, an impersonal force and not God Almighty, and it drives me nuts. But you know, I, I, you know why people describe God this way? It's because he's an impersonal force and being to them, which means he doesn't hold them accountable, which means they can get away with things, and they don't have to be held accountable to a divine personal being who is almighty, 
But yet Mary right here in her song and all over scripture, we know who God is. His name is holy in that he's separate from us. He is the omnipotent one. He is the almighty one. And he's a personal being who not only is mindful of his people, but he punishes sin. And there are consequences to our actions. And that's what Mary's talking about here. She's saying God is mighty. And she goes on to describe how how God is mighty in that verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has shown strength with his arm. Now, again, God does not have a body like you and me. He's a spirit. So what's Mary getting at here? Theologians use this big term. It's called anthropomorphism. Say that three times. Anthropomorphism. What in the world does that mean? What it means is, is that it's a picture to help us understand who God is. It's symbols to point to who God is. And so oftentimes in the Old Testament, we see and we hear about God's arm, his mighty and outstretched arm. What is that referring to? It just refers to his power. It refers to him being almighty and the omnipotent one. It refers to his strength. And so Mary is saying here, he has shown strength with his arm. He is the mighty one. And I guarantee when Mary wrote these words, she is referring back to Numbers chapter 11. And some of you probably haven't read Numbers 11 in a long time. So let me refresh your memory what's going on in Numbers 11. In Numbers chapter 11, Moses was with God's people in the wilderness. And they had been eating manna, bread, all day, every day. They had bread, manna, for breakfast. They had it for lunch. They had it for dinner. They had it for snacks. They were getting to a point where they were saying, I am over manna. I'm over it. I'm tired of eating the same thing. In fact, when you get into Numbers 11, they said to Moses, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing the cucumbers, the melons, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. And so God told Moses to tell the people that he would provide for them meat. But it would not just be for one day. It would be for an entire month. And this is the humor and the irony of the whole story in Numbers 11. God said, I would provide meat for my people for a whole month until it came out of their nostrils and became loathsome to them. Isn't that humorous? But it was as if God said, okay, you don't want bread anymore. I'm just going to give you meat. But by the way, you're going to get tired of meat. And after a few days of it, you're going to say, I'm tired of this. I want something else. And what did God do right after that? He provided quail and they began to eat meat and they ate meat and they ate meat and they ate meat. Until they were tired of meat. And many of them ended up dying because of the consequences of their sins. This is where Mary was referring to God being a mighty God with a mighty arm. Verse 23, the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Is my hand shortened? Of course not. So again, a great example that Mary was referring to about God's might and that his arm is strong. But she also goes on to describe three things about how his arm shows strength, how he shows might. And she goes on to describe how God takes away our pride, he takes away our power, and he takes away our possessions. She went on to say, 
He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Scattered the proud. What's she saying here? God will take the pride down. You know, medieval theologians, they would call the, the sin of pride really the, the root of all the seven deadly sins. So that when you're envious of someone, it's a result of pride. When, you're, when you have gluttony, it's a result of pride because you want more. When you lust after someone or something, it's because of pride because you want more. What Mary is saying here is God is displaying his strength and his might when he takes down the proud. When he tears them down, essentially, he scatters their thoughts. So again, how does this apply to you and me? Well, what are you prideful about right now? There's a good source of pride. Like you can be proud of your kids. That's a good thing. But what are you prideful of right now? Honestly, think about it. Are you prideful of your 401k and your house that's paid off and your nice, beautiful house that you take care of? Are you proud of your looks and trying to stay fit and healthy? Are you proud of your musical skills and your hobby that God has given you gifts to do? Are you proud of your position at work? Are these things becoming more of you and taking the place of the Lord because you want to be significant and you want control? Well, if that's you, I hate to say it, but God may take that from you. I mean, you hear about house fires all the time. You hear about tragedies all the time. You hear about sickness and death all the time. We need to hold things loosely and not so tightly. And oftentimes in our American culture, it's all about being proud of who I am. Well, there is an element of good to being proud. But this isn't what Mary's talking about here. She's saying God will scatter the thoughts of the proud. The second thing she says of how God displays his might is he, he, he takes down the mighty, the powerful. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. If you look at history, you will see that empires come and they go. Think about biblical history. Pharaoh came and went. Think about Ahab, Nebuchadnezzar. Think about Herod the Great. He came and went. Think about world history. You have leaders like Mao Zedong and Hitler. They have come and they have gone. Our president today will come and go. We need to be reminded of this because God, he he puts people in office and he takes them away. But yet Isaiah 9 describes us that the government will be on his shoulders And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of his government, there will be no end. Jesus is the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. He is on the throne forever. But yet so many of us, we fuss and we fret over our current situation because of our current leaders. And many of us get discouraged. And sometimes there's room for discouragement. I get it. But let this Christmas season remind you and me. Who's really running things? Who is really in control? Who is the Almighty One, the Holy One? It's the Prince of Peace, is who it is. It's Jesus Christ. Governments will come and governments will go. So please 
Don't spend all of your efforts watching the news and fussing and fretting over what's going on in Washington because we know who is over Washington. We know who is over this world. And it's God. He's the Almighty One. And He is the one who brings down the mighty from their thrones. The other thing that God can take away, He not only can take away our pride and our power, but He can take away our possessions. And the rich he has sent away empty. Think about the rich young ruler, what happened in that scenario. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? He walked away upset and empty because he was challenged to give away his possessions. But he was holding too tightly to those things. And so he walked away disappointed and empty. You know, it's interesting. This week, I was coaching my son's basketball team with a friend I knew from high school who is the, uh, the head coach. I'm the assistant coach. And, and uh, it's a, a, a church league. And so in the middle of practice, we'll stop our practice. We'll have a five-minute devotion with the kids. And my, my friend, Wes, he, he ended up doing this great devotion for these second graders. And he said, I want you boys to know that there are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who take from others and there are those who give to others. He said, those who take from others... They live their life with the closed fist, and they live their life holding on to things tightly. He said, those who give to others, they live their lives with open fists, open arms, freely to give their lives and to the Lord and to others. They're open. He said, notice the difference between those who are closed and those who are open, those who take and those who give. Those who take, they're firm and they're tight. They're not loose. They're just kind of crotchety, right? (laughs) They hold on to things too tightly. But those who give, I'm free. I'm free to give. I'm free to give. That's what Mary's referring to here. She's saying that the rich he sent away, those who hold tightly to their possessions and their things, (laughs) he will send them away empty, empty. That's how he displays his might, and the strength of his arm. He takes away our pride. He takes away our power. He takes away our possessions. But then she goes on to give some good news and describes God in a positive way as well as him being powerful. She says that God is not just mighty, he's also merciful. And who is he merciful to? Verse 50, his generation is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Those who fear him, those who acknowledge how powerful he is, those who acknowledge and are in awe of who he is, those who fear him for who he is, those are the people that God extends his mercy to for generation after generation after generation. You know how else Mary described the people who fear God, who receive his mercy? She says that these people are humble and they're hungry for him. They're humble and they're hungry. You know what I love about Mary's song is it, it really is a picture of what theologians call the great reversal. The great reversal is turning things upside down. The great reversal is doing something that you would least expect. The great reversal is taking those people who are proud and humbling them. And, humble, and, and, and making and exalting the humble, those who are humble, they lift up and exalt. God exalts. He gives grace to the humble. 
That's what the great reversal is. And we see two references of the great reversal in this song. The first is, she said in verse 52, God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Tears down the thrones, but he lifts up the needy and the poor and the brokenhearted and the weak. So how do we become Christians and how do we, rem- how do we stay in a healthy, vibrant relationship with Jesus? How do we do that? Well, first you gotta humble yourself. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. God gives grace to the humble. He says, my, my grace is sufficient in your weakness. Where you are weak, I am strong. So again, this Christmas season, I would encourage you to humble yourself before the Lord. Humble yourself. That is the great reversal. He will lift you up as you humble yourself and realize that you don't have it all together. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27 tells us, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This life is not about you and me. It's about him. This life is not about what I can get. It's about what I can give and what I can give him. That's what it means to have a humble state. And as we're humble, God will show his mercy to us. You know, as she went on to say the great reversal, she gave the second example in verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Filled the hungry with good things. You know what she's quoting here? She's quoting Psalm 107, verse nine. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. The other thing that she's doing here is she's quoting from Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter seven when Hannah said, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. This is the great reversal that Hannah was singing about in the Old Testament and Mary was singing about in the New Testament. Again, what does he do? He makes poor and makes rich. He brings low, he exalts, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. You know what that means for you and me? It means everything for you and me. As we humble ourselves before the Lord, as we're hungry for him and we want more of him and less of ourselves, One day we'll be with him as the prince of all and we will eat and dine with him in heaven. We'll be exalted in heaven. That's amazing. God extends his mercy to you and to me. And again, what does it take for us? It takes us to fear the Lord. It takes us to humble ourselves and it takes us to be hungry and want more of him. Matthew 5, Jesus said it this way, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. So do you wanna be satisfied? Yeah, you might eat a good meal and be okay for six hours. But do you really wanna be satisfied? To be satisfied is Jesus. He's the bread of life. He's the living waters that can only satisfy our every longings. And that's what Mary was praising him for. 
She was praising him because he was mindful of her, because he was mighty, and she was praising him because he was merciful, and he is merciful. And then she concludes her song by connecting God's promise to Abraham and his promise to her. Verse 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his, of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. What she's getting at here is she's considering God's promises to Abraham and also what it cost Abraham. And in the same way, she was applying it to her life. You see, Christianity, it comes with a cost. It comes with a willingness to surrender and to give everything to the Lord. That's what Abraham did. And that's why she's referring back to Abraham, not only being reminded of how God is a promise keeper, but think about the life of Abraham. Abraham was believing in a moon God. God delivered him from that false religion And he said, Abraham, I'm calling you out of all people to be the father of many nations to my people, but I want you to leave your comfort zone behind and I want you to go to a foreign land. Hebrews 11 describes how Abraham didn't even know where he was going. He knew not where he went, is the King James version of Hebrews 11. He didn't know where he was going, but God said, I want you to go. And what did Abraham do? He surrendered to the Lord and said, okay, my life is just turned upside down but I'll follow you because I trust in you. And he left his comfort zone behind and he followed the Lord with faithfulness. In the same way, notice what Mary did. She left her comfort zone behind. She risked her reputation, but she said, I'm a humble servant and I'm willing to surrender my life to you. My question to you is, are you surrendering your life to Jesus or are you holding too tightly to the things of this world? And if you're holding too tightly to the things of this world, it's going to disappoint you eventually. But Jesus will never, ever disappoint you. So live your life like this and not like this. You know, there was a fable that was once given, and it was about a story of a king who uh, went around his village just to see people and check on people, and he ran into a beggar. And this beggar had this little bowl that he was just trying to uh, get money and food from people. And, and the beggar extended out the bowl, hoping that the king would give him a bunch of money or give him food. And, and to his surprise, the king said, I'm not going to give you anything, but I want you to give me what you have. And the beggar was horrified and shocked. And he said, well, sir, uh, you're the king. You got it all. You know, can't you help a brother out? The king said, no, uh, let's see what you got. And so the beggar, he rummaged through his bowl and he found some rice and he just got a handful of rice and gave it to the king. Well, to the beggar's surprise, later that afternoon, the beggar ends up dumping out his bowl to see what he got for the day. And there were three glowing pieces of gold. And the beggar said, oh, if only I gave him everything. (laughs) I bring this example up not to promote the prosperity gospel because that's not what the story's about. What I bring up here is that we need to give the Lord our all and he will give back to us spiritually, not necessarily materially and physically. He's not gonna give us everything we want, but he will give us 
what we truly need, what we truly long for. And that is gold, his gold, him. He is the gold. He is the gold. And so this Christmas season, I encourage you to humble yourself, to be hungry for him, and to willingly surrender your life to him and let him take you where he wants to take you.